Hello and welcome to the new Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Frame.io. My name is Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film and documentary editor. For more than seven years, I've been speaking to my colleagues in film, TV, and documentaries about the art and craft of editing. My goal is to ask the kind of questions that you'd ask if you were given the opportunity to chat with some of the world's best editors. If you're interested in reading this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to blog.frame.io, where there's a ton of great expert content for film professionals of all types. Today, we're talking with Myron Kirstein, ACE, about teaming up again with director John Chu on the edit of Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical, In the Heights. Chu and Kirstein last worked together on Crazy Rich Asians, and Myron and I last talked for Art of the Cut on the release of Crazy Rich Asians. Kirstein's previous work as an editor also includes the feature films Going in Style, Garden State, and Glee, the 3D concert movie, among others. He's also been working on the Apple Plus TV series Home Before Dark and cut many episodes of the series Girls. And way back when, let's just say more than 20 years ago, he started out as an assistant editor on the iconic series Sex in the City. How are you? Good, man. So great to hear from you. I am excited about this interview. I loved the movie. Just loved it. Congratulations. What an accomplishment. Thank you so much. That is a huge statement coming from you, man, because not only do you see every film, but you talk to every editor about it. So you know what it takes. Well, I don't know what it takes to pull off that accomplishment, but that's what we'll talk about. <laughs> well, thank you so much. You said you and your wife saw it? Yeah, yeah. We didn't watch it in the theater. We watched it at home. It was the fastest way for me to press the button and let's watch it. Right on. I believe that a big opening of the box office is great, but I also believe any way somebody can see something is all right by me as well. And if that's the way they're going to watch it and they love it that way, I'm down. (laughs) I see a bunch of movies every single week. And if I saw them all in the movie theater, I don't know. (laughs) Just getting to the movie theater and back, let alone paying for them. But I'm trying to think what I just saw. I saw nobody in the theater. Oh, cool. That was probably the last thing I saw in the movie theater. Mm -hmm. And just to start off on a slightly technical note, I do these interviews out of curiosity, honestly. I'm just really interested in the process. And one of the things that struck me with this was that some of the musical numbers are quite long as a scene. They're eight minutes or 10 minutes or something long. How do you organize that in a bin to be able to see what you're looking at and to be able to move on to the next section seamlessly? Well, first of all, I just treat them like big set pieces, obviously, from the get-go. And I don't do anything special as far as organizing them in bins. Although, if I have multiple setups and multiple cameras, I might have part one to part eight, just because there's just literally too many clips in a bin. I generally will have the A and B grouped together, and then numbers like 96,000 or something like the club, I might have four or five bins just covering all the different camera angles and setups. But then I really painstakingly go through every camera and just start pulling selects. And what I do is I divide the number into what I call zones or just beginning, middle and end, or if it's a very large number, like up to a certain lyric. And by breaking it down into basically smaller scenes, it just allows me to organize it in smaller chunks. 
And then sometimes I have a miscellaneous selects reel that it can go anywhere in the entire number. It could go in a specific section, but also it can go anywhere from beginning, middle, or end. Me breaking it down to smaller units just gives me a fighting chance. Unless John's like, hey, I need you to cut this scene or musical number today. <laughs> <laughs> slap it together. I don't put too much pressure on myself to flesh out something too quickly. I make sure that we have the coverage to make the scene. And if there's ever a question of like a section that I feel like I need to cut something together for, and tell production they need something, I'll do it. But generally, I spend a lot of time making these selects. And sometimes I'll say, today I'm going to just pull selects for setups A through Z. And then tomorrow I'll do AA through DD. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll do the same thing with cutting. Then I'll say, I'm just gonna cut the first section today. Just assemble this first section today. And then the rest of the day, I'm gonna watch dailies for either the dailies I didn't finish the day before or for whatever is new coming in. So it's this constant rotation of watching dailies, making selects, cutting and so on and so forth. And I just try not to get too overwhelmed by the sheer amount of footage because John shoots a lot and the multiple cameras are trying to find a lot of verite moments, specifically in this film. And I just wanted to be really thorough. I didn't want to rely on the multicam function at all, even though I had that sometimes. But we did these giant supergroup clips and I use those occasionally but i almost all the time went back to my selects i never cut really into the multicam i felt like i was going to miss something i felt like it was going to be a cheat in some ways mm -hmm. and i just really wanted to force myself to be as thorough as possible that kind of brings me to a question that i had the very opening number in other places throughout the movie there's great little moments of color where you see especially at the beginning people getting ready for their day a cop is getting ready in front of a mirror there's a guy who's mopping a floor did you build those out musically and then go, I think we need some color here, or did you cut it chronologically? Well, the entire number was shot over almost the entire course of the production, so it took really long. And in fact, those details of what we call the community chorus wasn't shot until way into the post-process. Mm. And so we had giant gaping holes there that just said uh, community chorus in a card. And then once we started getting closer to friends and family screenings and test screenings, we actually pulled stock footage of people were like getting ready for their day and the doctor checking someone's pulse, <laughs> you know, and that was there for the longest time. John had to basically go back to the studio and ask, we need a little bit more money to shoot this stuff because they really just never got it in principle photography, but we always knew it was supposed to be there. And of course it was helpful to be able to have that time to put together this entire number because there were so many different locations, so many things that we had to try to establish as far as the visual grammar at the beginning of the film, like little touchstones of magical realism, jump cuts, words on the screen, split screens, places where we're really cutting up the choreography, other places where we're just holding on a shot, like that reflection shot of Usnavi or that big crane shot at the end. So there was VFX there with a little iPad that Usnavi shows the tourists. So there was a lot of elements and then we had this community chorus. It was good to wait to really figure out what we wanted, what we needed. And then we shot that, I think, maybe six or seven months after we were done shooting the principal. I wanna ask about the reflection shot. So I don't know if anybody knows what we're talking about, but there's a great push in to one of the principal characters in a shop window and you're 
watching the dancers reflected in the street outside. How was that done? Well, the plate is basically Usnavi rapping, and then we have a separate plate of the dancers doing the choreography, and then it's just up to me to match up basically what was supposed to happen musically. And then it was essentially a VFX, placing it in. It took a long time to try to figure out the tracking of that shot. Alice Brooks, the cinematographer, did a great job lighting both sides of it. So now it's just marrying that shot and making sure that there was nothing messed up on the choreography side and then picking, the obviously, the best performance for Usnavi and just believing in it. Funny enough, we also had three or four cameras running on that footage as well. So I could cut up, if I wanted to, I could cut up that footage. And in fact, my first assembly, I did exactly that because... I get little input from John when I'm first assembling. He really likes me to try to find my own way. And every once in a while, he'll say to me, do you want my input? And I'll say no. Let me try to get my take on it. And things like that, I would have never known that that was designed just to hold. But he's also smart. He covers himself just in case. So no green screen or anything like that. It's literally a plate of a guy in a window. And then the reflection was layered in. Yeah. There might have been green screen on Yusnavi's side, I forget. I think maybe we were close enough that we didn't need it. 90% of that bodega is actually on a soundstage. So we did shoot a majority of the film in Washington Heights, but the bodega and the nail salon was actually completely built on a soundstage. So anytime you're inside the bodega looking out the windows, that's all VFX work and et cetera. I know that some of the singing, or a lot of it, was recorded live during the filming, and some was pre-recorded and some was ADR'd. When you were cutting, how did you deal with the sonic vocal differences between those, or did you just pick the pre-recorded and just went with it? Sometimes they mixed and matched, but oftentimes what would happen is that we'd start a song a cappella live, or if we went further into the live, they'll have the pre-record in an earwig. But generally, my rule was if they were doing it live, try to use it as much as possible. And there's places like, obviously, when you're home, at the beginning of that is all live, or Champagne is completely live, both of them. That whole one take, steady cam, bungee camera shot is all live. Anytime Yusnavi's rapping, like in Carnival or in certain sections, I believe in the finale, just throughout the film, there's just tons of little places where we would place it in. I try not to worry too much about the sonic differences, to be honest with you. It was helpful because I was cutting in 5-1, so I was able to place all the vocal tracks, whether it was pre-record or live in the center channel. So it gave me the feeling that it was all coming from the same place, so it kind of fooled me. And sometimes I would EQ it a little bit just in my assembly process or... If it was something live in a club, give it a little reverb, deverbing, <laughs> or whatever tools I could use in the Avid. But I tried not to get too much in the weeds and that stuff because I knew it was going to get better later. And I also didn't know like how much live we we're going to keep. I think on like the beginning of 96,000, those guys walking down the street, that's all live except for Benny, for example, because Corey's voice was a bit rough. He had a cold or something that day. So it's all live except for him. So it's just a mix and match. And for the most part, it worked really well. It was astonishing how great they all were. I'm sure you were given a bunch of tracks more than what most of us normally have to deal with when we're dealing with production tracks. I'm like, oh my gosh, I got three microphones I got to deal with. This is craziness. What were you dealing with and how did you manage that number of production tracks in your timelines? 
I relied a lot on Andy Pang, my first assistant. He was amazing. I just talked to him. I just said, it has to be big enough to be able to cover as many of these music tracks as possible, but not so big where I can't cut in an efficient way. I think it was mostly the principal vocal tracks throughout a number, and then the chorus tracks would be on one track, and then instrumentals. And that's about as far as I broke it down. I tried not to break down the instrumentals too far, unless I really needed it, because I just, it was just too much. The principal vocals alone could be four or five people or something. 100%. Yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> you know, something like a 96,000, though, is really helpful because there's so many voices, there's so many layers that are overlapping each other that me being able to isolate somebody at a given moment allowed me, A, to understand what they were singing about, but also it helped me try to figure out when I wanted to cut to somebody. So it all was really cumbersome, to be honest with you. It was all very overwhelming at first because it was like, oh, holy shit, am I going to be able to focus and not get so overwhelmed by all the tracks in my timeline? That's just the music tracks. It wasn't like the dialogue tracks and all the effects tracks. That was just the music tracks. And then I had the idiotic gumption to like decide to cut in 5-1, which I'd never done before. Wyatt Smith was in the edit room that I took over right before I left, and he had cut like into the woods, and I went up to him and I said, I think I'm going to keep the 5-1 setup you have in your room. Can you teach me? And he basically sat down with me for an hour and said, this is how you do it. And then I was just like, okay, I knew that John Chu would really benefit by hearing the theatrical approximation of what it would sound like in the theater in my edit room. So I was like, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to do it. So it's some work, isn't it? I have not used 5.1 in a feature film. So he gave you an hour-long lesson. Can you give me a five-minute lesson? <laughs> <laughs> Well, at the end of the day, it's like um, your audio mixing tool, except you now have dimensions. You can now... You've got a little graph, right? A little square yeah. graph. Yeah, and you can basically put the sound into any corner into that graph. So if you put it into the dead center, it will feel like it's dead center in the room, like literally in your room, because you have your three speakers up front, and then you have your two in the back. So it'll literally sound like... It's in the middle of the room. If you pan it to one side a little bit more, you'll feel it more to one side or up front or back. And then you could do tricky things, which I didn't really do, which you could actually start it in one place and it could end in another. Say it was a car buy, I wanted to start it up front to the left and I wanted it to end to the right and back of me. You could do that. And I think it's very similar to how you mix Atmos in a very basic way is basically you're setting your audio digitally into the space. Did you mostly put dialogue and singing tracks up front in the middle that was just like the yeah. default right yeah the default was always center sometimes if it was community chorus i would put it more into the room just because it would feel bigger and i'd want it to spread around me i generally would put the musical stems in the room as well and then vfx traditionally just up front some were spinning around me it just depended in a given factor I have to ask you, was the hold music on the Stanford call scripted? <laughs> no. In fact, for the longest time, it was Careless Whisper in there, <laughs> which made everyone laugh as well. And it was actually Lynn's suggestion to do the Hamilton Easter egg in there. And I was worried that people weren't going to be able to tell what it was quick enough, but people seemed to be getting it. So, um. <laughs> I got it for sure. One of the things that, which I loved about your editing of this was that there's so much music, but nothing really, apart maybe of 96,000, but nothing felt like a music video. 
It did not feel music video we, and it could have gone that way. Did you do something specific, intentional, not to make it look like a music video? Well, first of all, I just kept telling myself, don't make it like a music video, <laughs> you know? <laughs> did you have a post-it note at the bottom of your screen? Practically, I practically had that on a mirror waking up every morning. Don't make this thing feel like a music video, <laughs> which is like, what does that mean? You know, and at the end of the day, I even say like 96,000 isn't a music video, but it is the closest version of a music video. I was trying to really treat musical numbers like scenes, not recording people singing songs. And yeah, just try to keep it grounded and, and uh, cinematic and feel like the storytelling doesn't end just because you're singing. So I treated the vocals like dialogue in any other scene. I treated the music like the action sequence in Star Wars. It's not laser beams shooting at you or you sounding like it's literally drumbeat. That was my beginning philosophy was try to treat this like a scene, not people singing songs that you're watching. And the difference is so intangible, but that was really my mantra. And then specifically, I tried not to edit things just for edit's sake. I didn't want to just make an edit just to make things more exciting. I would do it either to heighten the drama of a scene or heighten the choreography or show somebody expressing themselves with the choreography or the way they would sing something. Obviously we did some things to protect the actors or the dancers like you do in every scene. But at the end of the day, I just wanted to keep it grounded. I didn't want it to turn into just two and a half hour music video. Mm -hmm. I take a lot of pride in all the musical numbers, everything from It Won't Be Long Now, where we start and stop on the dime on a music, you know, we could have a whole scene between Usnavi and Vanessa in the bodega, and then we could start up the song again. I just love those moments, and we were able to do those pretty seamlessly, and that wasn't always easy. But also, uh, I take a lot of pride in sections of the film, like the club all the way through Alabanza, which is like one giant set piece of energy, of chaos, of Pacencia Fey to emotion with Alabanza and literally the light levels were so low that I had to cut it by candlelight. I had to turn off all the lights <laughs> in my room. I had to dim my monitors as much as possible. I had like a candle my assistants were like, what are you doing? There's like a seance going on in your edit room. I was just like, I'm literally crying when I'm cutting Alabanza. But the whole night of the blackout is just one of the proudest things I could ever cut in my lifetime because there's so many different aspects of cutting, whether it's cutting the high intensity, high volume, sweaty hotness of this club, to just the chaos of the streets during the blackout, to the verite moments with the family playing bingo, and then Abuela and Pacencia Fey, and then her death, and then Alabanza. It was probably the hardest part of the film to figure out. There was so much material. The beach was also a device in which I could keep things unmoored, and I feel like films like All That Jazz, which I didn't really understand as a kid. I was just scared shitless by the use of perspectives in that film, and I just wanted to play with that a little bit as well, and I'm just glad it all came together and just sort of this really strange, wonderful gestalt of it all. I think you succeeded, so. <laughs> Thank the, you. The post-it note worked. <laughs> the post-it note on your mirror. Sometimes you do have to set those rules for yourself, just remind yourself what you're doing. I also have to say that this isn't to pat myself on the back at all, but to spend that time 
just selecting things and watching the dailies and just doing a lot of thinking, to be honest with you, about what I was going to do. Like a number like Carnival, I would be stalling for like weeks to cut it because I was just thinking so much about how I wanted to structure things and how I wanted to cut things. And I think that sometimes when you use the multicam function and just slap it together, things just become a little bit more random, I guess. Not to say that's what music videos are at all, but I do feel like they're just a little bit more about the making a bigger splash in a shorter amount of time. And that's their job. Yeah, 100%. And my job was to be a storyteller and try to get people invested, let it be an emotional experience for people. And yeah, I just had to be really mindful. And every one of those numbers were done specifically in certain ways, and they all required certain cutting styles and moments where I would have to pull back and let them do their thing. And other times I could go in there and really construct something that was also exciting. You had some tough choices to make in the big musical numbers between the great choreography. You probably could have just stayed on the dancers for the whole movie and you would have had a great visual movie. But you had those great choreography, big crowds of dancers, and then picking your moments to be with the stars. How did you make that decision? I'm trying to think of the number where there, it ends with the bridge behind them uh, when you're home? Yeah. When you're home? Or? Yeah, when you're home. Yeah. Because you've got these beautiful actors and actresses. You have great performances from them, I'm sure, in close-ups. And yet you've also got fantastic choreography. <laughs> what do I do? I know. It's funny because sometimes, both in When You're Home or something like Nomadiga, where you're literally having the best dancers in the world do this amazing number with their nails the nail salon and I literally wanted to cut the whole number just on these nails because it was like I mean the choreography just on the nails alone was just outstanding it was tough because at any given moment I could cut to somebody doing the best dancing and choreography at any moment and something like when you're home in fact some of the dancing at the end of that number specifically is incredible but we intentionally really stayed on Corey and Leslie to heighten them and then punctuate moments with the dancing versus the dancing just totally taking over. Or you have all those break dancers, incredible break dancers, just literally propelling themselves off benches and stuff. And you're like, I still need to try to focus on them somehow. And it took a lot of experimentation, to be honest with you. And sometimes I would lean towards the choreography because it's where your eye goes to is the shiny, bright pizzazz of it all. But then you realize I'm losing sight of our stars telling their story. So it was just a balance. It was a lot of experimentation. And also knowing that I had 12 other numbers that I could cut to choreography down the line. So I just had to be mindful of the big picture. Did some of that experimentation you're talking about involve screeners and viewings for friends and family or whoever else? Talk to me about what the screeners did for you in this movie. This was pre-pandemic, most of the screening process. So tons of screenings in the edit room and giant screenings, friends and families in New York City. It was really helpful to try to figure out what the balance of this film was going to be. There was a lot more scenes dramatically that ended up on the cutting room floor. There was a lot more of the beach device, the storytelling device with Usnavi at the beach that was in the film. And there was a lot of debate about whether or not Benny the Dispatch should be in the film, When You're Home, Pacencia Faye was on the bubble about maybe being cut out of the film. 
And wow. I can talk you, more about that in a second. Yeah, I, you know, I definitely want to hear about the decisions about those couple of, in the dispatch scene is a great scene. And that was on the bubble, huh? Yeah, basically at the end of the day, all those screenings really helped us not be afraid of failing and just trying big swings at things and letting people get mad at us. <laughs> And then we could just hone and get closer and closer. In fact, we even did a preview screening, a double preview screening in Pasadena where one version was 30 minutes shorter than the other. And we did some really big swings, big restructuring, and those two films scored exactly the same, which basically told us, well, we could either have a shorter movie or a longer movie, but we think that the longer version is okay. And we could take some of the shorter elements from the shorter version and apply it to the bigger version, et cetera. So all these screenings were really helpful to understand what the limitations were of the film. Obviously things like just the basic storytelling and performance was just really helpful to get people's feedback on. Yeah, when we first screened the movie for Lynn, we screened it without bending the dispatch in because we really struggled with length in general. Length was a real problem. It was really hard. Once you get into a song, it was really hard to cut down. We were able to do it in a few places, but it was difficult. And there was only so many scenes we can cut out of the movie without the whole movie just feeling like a wall-to-wall music number. It was already in danger of doing that in the first place. And we were struggling with the balance between Benny and Nina and Vanessa and Usnavi and the rest of this ensemble as well. We just didn't know how much movie the audience could take and that was the first effort of cutting it out and you know we screened it for lynn it was like amazing movie we've got a movie where's bending the dispatch <laughs> when are you gonna put bending the dispatch back in i'm like oh yeah we're just trying a couple things don't worry. <laughs> you know it's just like that's an interesting point though right because you were cutting this first your own take on it then the director comes in and the two of you and it's Lynn's musical, right? It's something he wrote. It's something he cares about. And yet you guys were putting your own stamp on it and doing things like cutting out the dispatch scene. So it's very interesting to me to hear you know, what his take was on, wait, where's that scene? And to credit Lynn, like he left us alone most of the time to just do our thing. Just to explore the film as artists and see what we're going to come up with. And we don't invite that process in until six or seven weeks into post. And we really hunker down together. And most of the screenings, internal screenings, are with our assistants and a few select people. And then we slowly open it up more. In fact, the first couple of weeks of post, we did nothing but restructure the entire movie. Literally had our beautiful scene cards that our PA assistants basically put up on the wall. And then it, within days, they're all torn apart, all on the floor. These, uh, I'll sure there's a great picture of John just staring at all the cards. Like, we have to figure out the right structure of this movie. Something like it won't be long now, came after 96,000. And so we were like, let's bring that introduction before 96,000. Let's introduce as much of our characters. But anyways, long story short, the friends and families were really helpful. The process of restructuring was like any film. You're just trying to figure it out. As far as like Pacencia Faye, it was scripted earlier in the movie. That's the grandmother yeah. with the memories. Yeah, in the memories of the train cars. And it was scripted in the first act of the film. And... It really did not work there. And by the way, that was similar to the original stage production. 
But there was things in the original stage production that were not the same to our musical. So it was already sort of separated from its intent in the first place. I think maybe in the original stage production, at the end of that number, I think you realize she has a lottery ticket, I believe. So... Anyways, long story short, it was not working. People were freaking out because when they shot that number, of course, it was just like, this is genius, it's so beautiful. And then they would watch in the movie, they're like, oh my God, this is horrible. And, I think, and, and you're right, it's a gorgeous scene, but that early in the movie, I would think it just grinds it to a halt. The biggest thing we kept saying to ourselves like, we got to get to 96,000 as quickly as possible. We have to introduce these characters. We have to get to our big set piece because at the end of the day, there wasn't really enough conflict in the first half of the film in order to keep us going for too long. So we had to introduce our characters, get to know them, fall in love with them. Then we could have something like 96,000. And then soon after, we could start introducing the conflict, so on and so on. And then we can go on to blackout. So I had mentioned to John... Within weeks of beginning the director's cut, I mentioned to him that I thought that this number could go as Abuela's deathbed song. And John was like, I don't know if we could do that, man. And he just kind of put a pin in it. And then after one screening, which went really well, but that number was still not working, I think we were having brunch with our producers and we're like, well, what are we going to do about Pacencia Fey? And John sits there and he's like, we could move it later to, as a deathbed song. And it's like, in fairness, this was Myron's idea. And <laughs> I'm looking at him like, first of all, what the hell? And second of all, I don't know if it's actually going to work. It's one thing to have it in your head. You know, you, editors all the time, they would just think of crazy ideas in their head about moving something or trying to save a scene, but you know, it's another thing to actually do it. And then I knew I could move it as a scene. Like it's easy enough. It takes three clicks to just insert something, but I didn't know if I could organically make it feel intentional. So as soon as we left that meeting, we literally went straight into the cutting room and started working on it. And within like a day, we were like, oh my God, it actually works. And strangely enough, I didn't even know this at the time, but Kiara, the original writer of the book for the original stage production, had told Lynn when they were shooting that scene that it feels like her deathbed song, but I never knew that. I never knew that she had said the same thing off the side. So in some weird way, it was just meant to be there. We just didn't know it until we did it. I did not know that scene was supposed to be earlier, and it feels like that's where it belongs. Wow, that's an incredible reconstruction. I jokingly said, I think you only get one of those in your career, in your lifetime, where you get that lucky <laughs> with that kind of... I bet you've got more of those in you, I'm guessing. That's incredible. Like you said, there's something about the fact of how that plays into the emotion of the moment that makes it feel like it belongs there. I think originally it was intended to help Abuela decide whether or not she was going to go to the DR with Usnavi. She's been struggling so much in her life. Why should I struggle anymore? I should go to the DR and be happy. But it wasn't feeling that way. It felt like there was so much sadness in it. Anyways, Abuela's death was working pretty well regardless of the number, but the number wasn't working without the context. One of the things that you mentioned was those quieter moments, that it, you didn't want it to just be wall-to-wall -wall music. And the easiest thing to do is just say, Cut all that stuff where they're just talking, right? But I love that. It just gives you this dynamic of quiet and peace before the next big musical number. So talk to me about 
protecting those moments? I was the most protective of the beach and these little scenes, whether it was with Mark Anthony and Yusnavi, the Gapo scene where he's talking to his uncle about taking somebody to the DR. Those scenes were really extremely important because I knew that if I didn't have them, there wouldn't be any dynamic. And the film was already feeling episodic and vignette to some degree. And I knew I needed some other things to just literally have breaks and just different textures and pacing and in order to just feel more balanced. That doesn't mean I wouldn't cut down a dialogue scene or like I said before, there was plenty of dialogue scenes that were cut out of the movie. I just knew that I needed something in between. And I also wanted that plot device of the beach. It was very important to me to keep that plot device because at the end of the day, this is about the meditation on what home is, where is home, how did it get to the beach, or is he at the beach? The children for me was also like, he's passing on stories down to the next generation. And so the idea of, you know, what Abuela says to Nina, telling the stories about her grandmother, making uh, these napkins, it's the little details. The whole film is about the little details. You know, every expression, every dance move, everything in this entire film are the little details. So if you didn't have this device of the beach, I think you'd still get it, but there was something even more deeper about that idea to me. So it wasn't really about tricking the audience about the ending. That was just a little like fun, clever, usual suspects, fun thing at the end. But at the end of the day, it was about these bigger ideas about who do we tell our stories to or why do we tell our stories to the next generation i'm trying to remember does the beach start the film it does and did it always start the film yeah it did we literally had stock footage with a big wave crashing down and we were trying to figure out sonically how to paint the city so we literally created this little montage of sound design in the edit room of hearing like the new york radio on a little subway and then that would build up to the beat. You know, what does a suinito mean? And then the big crash of the beach. And then we go to the city. I love it. There's a big cast of characters. You got a lot of people that you're trying to track, at least couples. Talk to me about how you would go, oh my gosh, we haven't seen Usnavi for uh, five minutes or something. We need to get him back. Yeah, that was a lot of our restructuring process where we're just like, okay, we got to get Usnavi to the beach. That's the real thread, if there was any. I think we ended up watching the movie maybe a dozen times in two weeks, just playing with the structure of his storyline. <laughs> My sister's like, they're watching the film again. They're not doing any work. They're just watching the film. But no, we were playing a lot with just trying to figure out the big picture in our heads. And of course, Vanessa came with that. So sometimes we're like, now is it too much Vanessa and Yusnavi? And that's when we actually took almost all of Vanessa and Yusnavi out. And it was just Nina and Benny. It was really a lot of experimentation with just how to hold the ensemble together. And what really occurred to us over time was that they were all dominoes holding each other up. At the end of the day, it was about community. So we just had to find the right balance of our community, whether it was what couples or what have you, or if it was like Abuela's storyline or Sunny's storyline or the salon ladies. We had to realize that they're all holding each other up. We just had to try to figure out the right balance and just make sure that one didn't really overwhelm the other, I guess. We actually didn't finish the entire movie before the pandemic and the post-process, and we came back and we actually took out more scenes 
with Ustavi and Vanessa deep into the pandemic, six months after we had finished post initially. Still trying to figure out that balance. It was all about the balance. Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember I wanted to do this interview with you last year. <laughs> I, I know. Can you believe that? I was yeah. thinking, oh, this will be uh, in 2020. I'm like, oh, I can't wait for this movie to come out. I got to talk to Myron. <laughs> and so even at that point, the movie was ready to come out and then you did more work or was that? Correct. Oh, Correct. wow. Well, what happened is we had finished editing and we started mixing the movie. And then long story short, I had gone to another job while they were mixing and then my job got shut down and then the mixing got shut down and then I didn't work for six months and nor did anyone else. And then I moved back to LA and John moved back to LA and then he gave me a call and said, hey, I've been thinking about a few things. Would you mind opening up the edit room again? I said, no, of course not, let's do it. Both of us didn't really know what that meant, to be honest with you. We had time away from the movie and we we just started talking again and we're just like, if we're gonna trim the movie, these are things that we could try. So we started taking another stab at it. Meanwhile, the music department, even though they were mixing six months before was really behind because the music is obviously so complicated. So that gave them time to do stuff. And then I got to work with my music editors to intricately slip every shot in the entire movie to make sure lips sync matched. So that took time. So it was good. I said to John that I really think there's no doubt in my mind that the movie's better because of the pandemic, the silver lining of it all. Mm. It's so interesting that out of 300 interviews, maybe four or five, maybe six different movies that for some reason or another had a break. Tom Cruise breaks his ankle. Harrison Ford breaks his leg. Something happens and it gives you this time to go, hey, we got six months. (laughs) What do we do with it? And it does always, in every single one of those instances, had huge impacts to make the movie better. I feel like the film never really finishes to some degree, but to have the extra time to be able to reflect, to be able to sit there and watch it in your living room, or even, unfortunately, even on your own iPad and you're watching something, you're just like, oh, I could just tweak that. Every editor and director combination are some level perfectionist, so you just keep at it. But just having that extra time away, thinking about it, talking to your collaborators, talking to Lynn, Kiara, the rest of the producers, There was even a scene that we had cut out early stages of the movie that suddenly found its way back in and it hadn't been there on almost every screening we had ever done. What scene was that? It's a tiny little scene with Vanessa basically being harassed by two guys on the street. And this is right at the beginning of It Won't Be Long Now. And the reason why I put it back in was that it felt like, because we just finished Nomadiga just a second before, I was like, John, we need a breath between songs. We need something. And I was like, can we try putting that exterior beat back in? He was like, okay, let's do it. In the meantime, we cut out a really big scene with Yusnavi and Vanessa. They used to go upstairs to her apartment and she showed him her fashion designs. And this is right after the scene downstairs where they're sitting on the steps. And she talks about essentially, like, I just do nails. And he's like, no, you're an artist. And you're an artist I always basically looked up to. They used to go up to her apartment and she was like, oh, look at what I made. Isn't that amazing? And we didn't want her to have success too early in the movie. We wanted her to still have a bit of a motor, a place to go as a character. But we didn't know that for like six months because it was also a great scene. They're both amazing. Melissa in particular was incredible in it. If anything, it made her even 
more vulnerable character, but we just felt like it was too soon. We wanted the pain of what had just happened to Abuela to sit longer. We didn't want any success yet. Yeah. Tell me about the apartment scene with the champagne. Is that a true oneer? It's a true oneer. Yeah. Great editing. I jokingly say it's my best editing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. It's my, I blew my... the joke. <laughs> I've told that joke a few times though, so I've liked. It's okay, but I think it's better this way. <laughs> Did you do any shaping inside of that oneer, either visually or audio or whatever? The biggest thing is that there's VFX of the cameraman and the mirrors and stuff, so we had to take that stuff out. But now it was literally about picking the right take, and it's all live. So they just had to crush it. The camera work had to crush it. And once you pick the take, it was more about just enjoying the breath. To be honest with you, you get to have the musical numbers, so we keep up that component to the movie. But it allowed me to get more energetic, more stylized cutting for, like, say, the finale or Carnival. So just having the breaths before and after certain musical numbers were just really helpful to have. And that was a practical location. It was. Wow. I know. And busy street. It was in Washington Heights. It's really a feat. Alice Brooks is she's new to the scene and not new to the scene, but I think everyone's gonna know who she is now after this movie. I think that when I first saw, it, I was like, I can't believe that you pulled this off. How did you pull this off? And even things like when the sun goes down, there's moments where I'm just like, I don't even quite understand how you guys did it, and I cut it. I cut it in green screen. And I cut it with all the VFX, and I still don't quite understand what I'm looking at. I'm always intrigued by intercutting, and there's some intercutting between Isnavi leaving his apartment for the last time and the scenes in the DR. Correct? Yep. Again, in the effort to like keep the beach alive, and it's almost like the beach is like calling out to him, like, "Come here, you're almost here." I'm telling the end of the story, and I'm drawing Isnavi from the past to me. And Anthony did an incredible amount of work throughout the whole film. He did every voice of the entire opening number, and I was told that he did it to stay in rhythm. But it gave me the option to cut to basically the beach anytime I wanted to. And the same with the ending and with Alabanzo, I did that a bit where he's rapping on the beach, and then we finish a line in the apartment. I love intercutting in general. I love doing it. But specifically, I really just love these two moments. It's two universes, like the multiverse. <laughs> It's like the multiverse of Yusnavi is basically which path is he going to lead? Where is he going? Is he finishing his story on the beach and bringing him to to him, or is he being drawn into Washington Heights? Like this is the reality. I just love that play a little bit. I don't know which place I'm going yet. And there's a great moment when. He's staring at a reflection before he starts rapping on the street, right at the beginning of the finale, where he's looking out at Washington Heights. You see the reflection of the beach in there. It's just a fun way of just playing with which perspective are we going with. Yeah, all the beach is all kind of remembering Washington Heights, and then being in Washington Heights is all about fantasizing about being at the beach, being in the DR, and that's a great metaphor for life, right? <laughs> well, somebody was saying, yeah, you know, everyone has that.、Um, With their、uh, Zoom things, they'll have a beach wallpaper in back of them, like this place they wish they were. I was like, well, no, you're. This is home right here, right in front of you. You're sitting in it, but you're thinking on the beach. And especially after, not to go down too much of the rabbit hole, but after this pandemic, where it really taught us about home is this really safe place, and we get to be with our loved ones. And despite how hard it is, there's some silver linings to all that. Yeah, neither one of us have a beach background. <laughs> <laughs> Just for you listeners to know, 
Yeah. I wish I was staring at a beach right now. No, I'm very happy. Very, very happy. What was your project that got stopped in the middle of the pandemic? Did that start up again? Or are you going to be able to do that movie? It was actually a TV show called Home Before Dark. It was on Apple Plus. Oh, yeah. And I was actually directing an episode. So I got to do that after I finished In the Heights. So I directed an episode and then I cut three episodes and helped oversee the rest of the second season, which, by the way, just premiered as well this past week. So I had In the Heights and Home Before Dark season two premiere on the same week. And now I took over for Andy Weisblum on Lynn's directorial debut tick tick boom so i'm cutting that now as we speak so oh, I've, been, awesome. I've been trying to stay busy are you doing that in five one again no no andy started the project in basically stereo so i decided to not create a mess <laughs> by converting the show and it's a bit different because it's a more intimate sort of meta biopic. So the requirements weren't as prescriptive, I guess, to be able to need to do that. And again, I didn't want to create a big mess just because I like playing with the toys. How does your editing inform your directing and how does your directing inform your editing? Well, I guess I would just say that I knew the more pieces I gave the editor, the better as far as performance, as far as telling the story, as far as pacing up the episode, especially in TV, there's just no patience at all for anything to take too long. Even on a streaming platform, which generally gives you more time because you're not cutting the commercials, etc. But I, I just knew I had to give them as many pieces. And I knew that if I tried to give a variation of performances, without it being too schizophrenic, that I'd be able to also give the editor and the, the showrunner options in that department as well. That being said, easier said than done. Directing my first time was like trench warfare. It was really, really hard. I was working with kids and adults. And like I said, the first few days was my first time just with anybody. And then I got to do it again, thank God, but then I was doing it with COVID restrictions. So the good news, I didn't know anything different. I wasn't set in my ways one way or another because I hadn't done any of it. I had a lot of uh, empathy for directors before, but now I have tons of empathy for directors about like, I be so critical of directors. Like, why didn't you get that? That was so easy, right? And then I'm there and realize, oh my God, they have no time to do anything ever. Literally, the moment of the camera's ready, the AD's saying to me, when are you going to be done with the scene? That's how crazy directing TV is. So to be an artist in that world, it was really difficult. But I survived. The episode, I think, turned out pretty well. And I hope I get to do it more. And ironically enough, between doing In the Heights and then cutting the second season of this Apple show... I fell in love with editing even more deeply than I'd ever had in my life. And so maybe that had something to do with also directing, but I've just become so in love with the process. Just being reminded of how incredible, and by the way, the pandemic kind of helps that as well. Just not taking things for granted, but I just feel really excited about what we can do in the edit room and inspiring other people. Like I've been so thankful to have mentors like Jim Lyons, who cut Todd Haynes' films, or some of my friends like Tom Cross or Tatiana Regal. I'm just so thankful to have great peers in my life, all inspiring each other. And so directing was part of that, I think. How did you get that opportunity to direct? Luck. 
<laughs> I think that I made an impression on the showrunner and we became very close. John Chu directed the pilot in the second episode of the first season of the show. And then he went to go prep in the Heights. And he was like, while you're prepping in the Heights, why don't you stay here and finish? I was like, good, because I need a job, A, and B, I like the show. But it was great. I just kind of really helped shepherd the first season into completion. And that's the benefit of when you become very close to the showrunner as an editor. Like a film, it could be basically just your baby, just something that you feel a lot of pride and ownership as an artist. And then flash forward to us basically finishing the first round of our picture lock on In the Heights. The showrunners was like, I need you back. Please come. And I was like, I don't know if I can literally afford to come back after working on a features, you know, I have kids and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, let me sweeten the deal for you. Like, and also, by the way, I would love to have you on as a producer or somebody that helps shepherds the second season. And also, why don't we give you a director shot? It was something that I've always wanted to do, but I was working with John Chu. I was working with some amazing directors. Obviously, I didn't want to, and I still don't want to hurt that side of my career, but I got a shot, so I took it. Thanks so much for going on that little side journey with us. I love the film. I hope everybody gets a chance to see it, and congratulations. Man, you're the best. I hope you get a lot of credit about how many people you inspire oh, monthly. Thanks with your conversations. I hope we get to talk again down the line and I really, really appreciate you even taking a second on this one. So thank you so much. That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, these interviews are also available to read at blog.frame.io where they're supported with great visual content, images, video clips, and more. Also, it's a great opportunity to check out the other expert content on the blog for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven curated experience. Thanks to my guest, Myron Kirstein, ACE. Thanks also to Jake Gum for editing today's podcast using Adobe Audition. Thanks to Frame.io for their support of Art of the Cut and its pledge to keep this content coming your way. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. And so you don't miss all the great upcoming interviews on the Art of the Cut podcast, subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And if you have a friend in the film business or who aspires to be in the film business, make sure to tell them about the Art of the Cut podcast and blog.frame.io. 